Well, hey, Harvest Ottawa, Pastor Ray here. Looking forward to being back with you next week. But right now, I have the great privilege of introducing to you our guest speaker who's going to be bringing God's word to us this morning. His name is Andrew Chia, and he and his wife Joyce, along with their three children, come to us from Harvest Bible Chapel, Toronto West, where Andrew currently serves as the pastor of discipleship ministries, as well as serving as one of the elders of the church. So I am so excited for what God is going to do through him this morning. Let's give him a warm Harvest Ottawa welcome to him and his family. Well, good morning. Can you hear me? That's great. Well, it's so glad, I'm, I'm so glad to be here at Harvest Ottawa. And um, this church, even though this is, a, this is our first time here, is pretty dear to our hearts um, for a few reasons. The first is this, uh, Joyce, my wife, grew up in Ottawa, so this is sort of a homecoming of, of sorts. Now, the second is this, uh, just when I came in here, um, it smelled and looked like a church plant, which is an awesome thing. And uh, we were involved in our church plant at Harvest Toronto West four years ago, and one of the key verses that we had was, behold, God is doing a new thing. And if you guys have been here, part of the core group, and serving and sacrificing in this church, um, I hope you're starting to see new things. And I, I, got, I got a chance to, to watch your baptism video, and it, it moved me so much to see God transforming lives. And I pray he continues to do so at this church. The third reason why this church is dear to my heart is your, your pastor, Ray. Um, if, you've know, if you know Ray, you'd probably say he's, he's not lacking for passion. Uh, and more than being a passionate man, he's a man who loves Jesus Christ and loves the lost. And that's why he's in Ottawa, and we're thankful that he's there or here. Lastly, the church is dear to my heart because um, I love your elders. Uh, you probably haven't had a chance to meet that many of them, but I got a chance to sit with them every single week for a year and a half. And these are men who are not only wise, but so loving and are genuinely concerned for the welfare of Every single soul in all of our church plants, we've seen it in ours, and even before we launched our own elders, and we've seen it for your church plant as well. And so on behalf of them, I hope you know that they love you so dearly. With that, before we open God's word, I'd just love to pray. Our Father, we pray right now, not because that's the way you start a sermon, but we pray out of desperation for you. Because, Lord, if, there's, if the hearts out there are anything like my heart, it is a heart that longs for you, or at least longs to long for you, hungers to hunger for you, and thirsts to thirst for you. Lord, we're about to open your very word of God, and I pray that that will be enough to lift us from our chairs and lift our gaze to Jesus Christ. Lord, we need a word from you right now. And Lord, we pray that it will do in our hearts what you've promised for it to do in Psalm 19, that it will rejoice our hearts, that it will revive our souls, it will make wise the simple, oh Lord, and it will enlighten our eyes. Lord, may your word, through the working of your spirit, do what we can't. And Lord, I pray that it will leave us unchanged. We need you, God. That's why we're praying. Because, Holy Spirit, we invite you in to change us through your word. In your most precious name we pray. Amen. Amen. Um, today, I have the privilege of opening God's word in the book of James. And the topic of, for, for today is the topic of suffering. 
which is perhaps the most universal human experience. And in this life, because we lived in a fallen world, no one is spared from suffering. No one is spared from suffering. And perhaps for some of you, that truth is more than a truism. It's more than a mere platitude because you're suffering now. And the suffering is real, the pain is searing, and the wound is raw. Maybe you're suffering the death, of, the death of a loved one. Maybe you're suffering financial reversal, betrayal from others, the consequences of your own sin, or maybe just this inexplicable, incomprehensible loss. And now while the forms of suffering may differ, there are so many different types of forms that we all suffer, the curse of suffering affects us all. And so if we're all in the same boat, the question remains, how are we supposed to view suffering and respond to suffering? As we'll see this morning, our passage will give us a biblical view of suffering that's completely countercultural. Our passage is found in James chapter 1, verse 1 to 4. James 1, 1 to 4. And uh, you can turn there now. And if you don't have a Bible, feel free to raise up your hand and one of our ushers will be glad to get one to you. The big idea of this passage, as you're turning your Bibles, is this. We must rejoice in suffering because it is highly productive. We must rejoice in suffering. Why? Because it is highly productive. And that's why the title of our message this morning is this, Rejoice in Productive Suffering. Rejoice in Productive Suffering. So let's jump in and see what God's word has for us today. Please open your Bibles to James chapter 1, verse 1 to 4. Starting in verse 1. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the 12 tribes in the dispersion, greetings. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. <clears throat> See, if you look at verse 1, we immediately get clues to the context and circumstances in which James is writing. And it's this verse that will show us why his teaching and, uh, and this passage is so relevant to our day and culture. Look down at verse 1. It sets the table by telling us that James, who is the leader of the Jerusalem church, he's writing this letter to the 12 tribes of the dispersion. Now, that might sound strange to us, but it basically means, ooh, it basically means that he is writing to Jewish Christians, that's the 12 tribes, who are dispersed among the nations. Jewish Christians scattered among the nations. And perhaps the best label for these Christians is found in 1 Peter. It's the word exile. Exile. James is writing a letter to exiles who are living in a land that's not their home. And in a lot of ways, they are immigrants to a strange land, something that perhaps a lot of us can identify with. And the reason that James is writing this book is this. He wants to call the church to a wholehearted devotion to Jesus Christ, not just in word, but in deed too. He wants them to not just talk, the, he wants them to talk the talk and walk the walk. And the reason he was, he was calling for them to do that is this. He was starting to sense that there was this subtle pull that the Christian exiles were feeling to become just like everyone else. There was this soft whisper 
from the surrounding culture beckoning them to just think like everyone else, act like everyone else, and love what everyone else loves. So why is this relevant for us today? I think it's so relevant simply because of this. As Christians, we're exiles too. We're exiles too. And uh, your, the sermon series that you just went through, I believe, is, was called, entitled God's Glory in the Nation, right? And, and while we're citizens of this nation in one sense, we are really exiles into this nation in another. Our citizenship is in heaven. So we're exiles too. And we hear the same whispers to just give in and be like everyone else. See those social media posts in the world? Post like them. See the treasures and the possessions of the world? Accumulate them. Do you see, see the world whispers and says, do you see what I can offer you? Join me. Do you feel this pull in your life? Do you hear the whispers in your ear? Because I do. So we're, as Christians, we're exiles too, and we hear the same whispers. But notice if you look in your text, he goes from that context in verse 1 and jumps right into suffering in verse 2. What does the fact that we're exiles have anything to do with suffering? The answer is this, everything. It has everything to do with suffering because of this great truth. The whispers that we hear and believe from our surrounding culture have given us a devastating, catastrophic view of suffering. I'm going to say that again. The whispers that we hear and believe from our surrounding culture have given us a catastrophic view of suffering. And one whisper in particular that's done that is this. This world is all there is. This world is all there is. See, this whisper creates two catastrophic views of suffering. The first is that suffering can only be futile. Suffering can only be futile. See, if this world is all there is, then the point and purpose of this life is to get some sort of earthly good, some treasure or some possession, some kind of comfort, some kind of safety, and some kind of pleasure. And so when suffering comes into your life, it blocks you from getting those things and it puts them at risk. Suffering, then, is not just suffering. It robs life of its very purpose and offers no value in return. Like weeds in a lawn, having no productiveness at all, suffering can only be futile. Why? Because this world is all there is. The second catastrophic view of suffering that this truth brings is this, or this lie brings is this, suffering can only be miserable. Suffering can only be miserable. See, because suffering can only be futile, the only thing you can do with suffering is to just avoid it altogether, avoid it at all costs. Or, or if it's unavoidable, the goal is just to manage and minimize the pain and misery until it goes away. But there's no real hope apart from that. That's as good as it gets. Pain management. Suffering can only be miserable. Why? Because the world is all there is. Before we jump into verse 2, and while we're at verse 1, I want to ask you to ask yourself honestly, look into your heart and say, do you often find yourself falling into worldliness by believing these same lies? Here are questions for your heart. Do you avoid suffering at all costs? Do, do you see the, pro does the prospect of suffering paralyze you with fear? And do you see suffering as just an evil hiccup in your life? 
Because if those, if those describe you, they describe me a little bit too. And you, like me, are probably breathing the air of our culture more than we think. And that's why this passage is so relevant. And so we'll see in verses two and four that the Bible then declares radically different truths from that. What's on the screen? See, suffering is not only miserable. We can and we must rejoice in suffering. What a joy. Secondly, suffering is not only futile. It's highly, highly productive. So like James, let's just jump right in to verse two. Look at verse two in your Bibles. It says this. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. The first truth that we learn from this passage is this. As exiles in this world, yeah, we're exiles, we must rejoice in suffering. But before we look at the first part of verse 2, I want to start by looking at the second part of verse 2, the second half. And we see that the Bible adopts a comprehensive, realistic, robust view of suffering that considers a variety of suffering. Look at verse 2 in the second half. Do you notice how verse 2 says trials of various kinds? It doesn't just say trials, but stops to mention that the trials have various kinds. And, and in fact, in the book of James, James directly addresses lots of different trials, to, from poverty to religious persecution. And the Bible as a whole looks at all, a whole range of suffering from the consequences of our sins to trials utterly beyond our comprehension. But amidst all of these various kinds, amidst all these various varieties of trial, this verse says that joy is still possible. This is a grand truth. The truth is this. God looks across the whole wide spectrum of suffering and declares that all suffering can be rejoiced in. I'm going to say that again. God looks across the whole wide spectrum of suffering and says all joy can be, all suffering can be rejoiced in. There are no exceptions. There's no category or variety of suffering that is exempt from the potential for joy. Here's an application moment. Sometimes in our deepest sufferings, when you hear God's word exhorting us to rejoice in suffering, we're tempted to retort like this. You don't really know what I've been through. My suffering is different. It's beyond repair. I don't think it's possible to rejoice in my kind of suffering. This verse, this truth may apply to the suffering over there, but not here. But in this verse, God effectively says, this hopeful truth does apply here because I know you're suffering and no matter what kind or variety of suffering you're feeling, I know it and there's no suffering under the sun that is utterly joyless. I consider the whole range of human suffering and I still give the hope for joy. What a God. What a God who is so realistic. A God who sees and validates our suffering. And if you're a sufferer today, maybe that's the first truth you need. A God who sees your suffering and validates it. What then are we to do with our various sufferings? Well, well let's look at the first part of verse 2. It says this, count it all joy, my brothers. See, when we meet trials, the exhortation in this verse is to count those seasons of trial as all joy. Count as all joy. Those are the two key terms, and we'll look at them in turn. 
The word count, if you look at the original Greek word for count, it has two elements. It's pretty amazing. The first element is the element of thinking. In various other parts of the Bible, it's translated as esteem or regard or think. It's an active endeavor to change your perspective. It's a call to reckon our seasons of suffering as joy. Think, that's the first element. But the second element to the word count is that of leading. Uh, the implication is that in seasons of suffering, we don't just have to think, we have to lead our hearts. Our hearts have to be directed and led to rejoice. To count our sufferings as joy, then, is to engage both the mind and the will. It's to change your perspective, but also drive your heart to change that perspective. It's both meditative and proactive. That's what it means to count. But then James continues, and he says, we're supposed to count our seasons of suffering as all joy. But you might read that and think, what is all joy? Well, let's break down that, uh, that phrase. First, the word joy. It's more than mere happiness. It's a deep soul satisfaction and delight. Then he exhorts his listeners to all joy, all joy. What could that possibly mean? In the parallel text, in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 8, this is characterized in this way. Joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. Joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. That's some big joy. Like, who went to a movie this week and said that movie was awesome? It created joy that was inexpressible and filled with glory. We just don't talk like that because we don't typically deal with joy like that. A joy that is full-bodied and utterly transcendent. So the goal here, the call here, is to reckon to change your thinking and lead your heart into viewing your sufferings as all joy, a joy that is transcendent and full-bodied. Now, you might hear that and think, isn't that just idealistic optimism? Like, in the depths of suffering, are you supposed to just put on a happy face and just think positive thoughts? What does this joy really look like realistically? Fair? Well, Perhaps one of the best illustrations of this type of joy is given by Jesus Christ in John chapter 16, verse 21. It's on the screen, and it says this. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. There's the suffering, the sorrow. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy, joy, there's joy, that a human being has been born into the world. This is the picture we get when we consider what it means to count our seasons of suffering as all joy. I love the balance in this picture. In this picture of childbirth, indeed, like in childbirth, the pain, the sorrow, and the anguish of trial are real and intense. Or so I hear that they're real and intense. But the joy of the resultant baby outweighs the suffering. It's a full-bodied, awesome joy, but it's not devoid of sorrow and pain. See, it's at this point we have to make a key distinction here. The distinction is this. All joy means that we can have deep, full-bodied, intense joy. But all joy doesn't mean nothing but joy. We have to have this balance here. See, because if we don't, we fall into two common lies that our hearts can often hear. But this truth undercuts those lies. The first lie is the lie of what we call bleak pessimism. Bleak pessimism. This is the culture's lie that says this. I'm suffering. 
This is no place for joy here. This is only misery. But during childbirth, would anyone ever say, there's no place for joy here? No, because there's a baby at the end of this. All joy means we can have deep, intense, full-body joy. So this truth undercuts the lie of bleak pessimism. But this truth also undercuts the lie of what we call idealistic optimism. Idealistic optimism. And this is a seemingly pious lie, sometimes labeled as a religious lie or religious truth, but it's actually a pious lie that says this, I'm suffering, but there's no place for tears here. Just turn that frown upside down. But during childbirth, would anyone ever say, there's no place for tears here. Just turn your frown upside down. Uh, I'm pretty sure if I said that to my wife during labor, it just would not have ended well. See, it's okay to scream during labor because all joy doesn't mean nothing but joy. See, look at the truth on the screen, and it's amazing. The Bible's view of suffering is that it's neither bleakly pessimistic nor idealistically optimistic. It's neither joyless nor tearless. There can be great rejoicing and great weeping at the same time. God's word gives us both hope and realism all at the same time. Can I take a moment just to urge you? The question is this. How can you have more of a childbirth mentality towards suffering? How can you have more of a childbirth mentality towards suffering? See, when your heart tells you that, uh, that suffering is joyless, there's no room for joy here, preach to your heart that all joy means intense, full joy. There's a baby at the end of this. But when your heart tells you that there's no room for tears here, just turn your frown upside down, preach to your heart that all joy doesn't mean nothing but joy. It's okay to scream during labor. When you talk to your heart, strike this balance. And when you talk to one another, strike this biblical balance. Allow sufferers to weep, but encourage deep joy. You know, sometimes in the church, we're not good at this balance. We encounter sufferers and we hammer truth, but we don't allow them to weep. Allow them to weep, but also encourage deep joy. So the point is rejoice in suffering. That's point one. Amidst all kinds of suffering, rejoice with tears and deep joy. And this gives a beautiful vision of suffering. But a question remains, what is the baby of our suffering? What is the good that comes from it? Well, that brings us to our next point, point two. As exiles in this world, we must know that suffering is productive. Know that suffering is productive. Look at your text right now in verse three. It says this. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. See, this verse, do you see the word four in verse three? It shows that verse three is giving, or verse three and four are giving the grounds and foundation for verse two. It answers the question, why can I have joy in times of trial? How can I possibly rejoice and weep all at the same time? And the answer is in verse 3. Look down at verse 3. It says, for you know truth. And what is the truth we have to know? The truth we have to know is that suffering, do you see this, can produce steadfastness, which can in turn produce perfection and completion. Do you see the movement in the verse? Suffering to steadfastness. Steadfastness to perfection and completion. 
See, James is stamping the reason why we can rejoice in suffering. He's saying suffering is productive. It produces things. Suffering is productive. Like a woman in childbirth, we must not forget that the suffering has a purpose. No woman in childbirth ever stops and just says, why am I here again? Like, what's the point of this? See, she knows her suffering is productive, and we're called to know this as well. But the product of childbirth is plainly seen. It's a baby. But what's the product of our trials and sufferings? And how can we ensure that our suffering is productive as well? Well, let's look at the text. And I think it gives us two key truths of how we can make suffering productive. Suffering can be productive, point one here, or point two A. Suffering can be productive when we value tested faith. It produces endurance. Value-tested faith, it produces endurance. Do you see how in verse 3 he describes the trials as a testing of faith? And it's more than a testing of our coping strategies. It's a testing of our very foundational beliefs. And verse 3 says, because it produces endurance, you have to value it in some way. But how can testing, such a negative human experience, be so valuable? Well, if you look at the original Greek word for tested, it's actually pretty amazing. It only occurs one other time in the New Testament. And that's found in the book of 1 Peter, and it's translated as tested genuineness. Tested genuineness. Um, and this is found in 1 Peter 1, verse 6 to 7, and it'll be on the screen. It says this, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials. It's really similar to our text. So that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. I love this image. It's the imagery of a furnace and it's stunning. It basically says, look at a piece of gold. And when you put it in the fire, all of the impurities drip off. And what results is a piece of gold that is more pure, more precious, and more valuable as a result. And so it gives the reason why tested faith is precious and valuable. And the reason is this, because tested faith is like gold that's refined in the fire of a furnace so that it can be more pure, more precious, more valuable, and more beautiful. Real talk. Um, I think some of us truly, earnestly desire for God to purify us and perfect us. God, purify me, perfect me. But we're not willing to endure the furnace of trials. But that's like desiring pure, beautiful gold, but not being willing to put the gold in the fire of the furnace. That's like going to a jeweler, and I was like, I want the purest gold possible, but I'm not willing for you to actually put it in the furnace. But if we truly understand the design of the furnace, we'll cherish it. We would value the furnace that makes us valuable, and the furnace that makes us precious or produces precious faith would be precious to us. See, suffering can be productive when we value tested faith. Maybe you're finding yourself in a furnace right now, uh, and you're resenting it. Because let's be honest, it's hot. And not only is it hot, it burns. And if you're honest with yourself, you probably see the furnace not just as a furnace, but you see it like as an incinerator that's going to burn you to a dust and land you in an urn. But that's not what it is. See it for what it really is. 
It's not an incinerator that will consume you. It is a furnace that purifies you and makes you precious. Do you see the difference? That is a precious treasure. So this verse teaches us that tested faith is precious because it makes us precious. But how does it do that? What does it produce in us that makes us more precious and pure? And we find that in verse 3. It produces endurance. It says this, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. The word translated as steadfastness in verse 3 can also be translated as endurance. In Romans 5, it's a parallel passage. That's how it translates it. It says, we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance. And if you look at the original Greek, the sense is this sense of remaining under. That's the picture, remaining under. It's a picture of a person bearing under and carrying a burden or a load for a long period of time. And just like how carrying a load for a long period of time increases your physical endurance, bearing under trials increases your spiritual endurance. It increases your spiritual strength. And an extension to the image of gold refined in a fire is the image of steel that's forged in a fire. We, it's heated and shaped and beaten to make it stronger. That's the product of tested faith, endurance. So point 2A, suffering can be productive when we value tested faith. It produces endurance. But that's not where the text ends. It says endurance is not the final goal of trials and testings. See, suffering is far more productive than that. Verse 4 continues the movement of the text by telling us this. Suffering can be productive when we persist in endurance it produces maturity. Persist in endurance, it produces maturity. Look at verse four. It says, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. See, endurance here is not an end in itself. It has an effect, a further effect. And furthermore, there's this fullness to this effect that endurance can have. Like a meal cooking in an oven, endurance has to be fully baked and not half-baked. And notice that verse 4 is a command. Look at that word, let. We have to let steadfastness have its full effect. It doesn't say that steadfastness will automatically have its full effect. We're commanded to let it do so. And that's an exhortation then to leave endurance in the oven to be perfected. We can't take it out prematurely. We can't be like my little daughter who watches the, uh, the oven filled with cookies and wants to take it out like a minute after they're put in. We have to leave endurance in the oven. See, this is a call to persist in endurance. In fact, later in James, he repeats this call and he says, remain steadfast, remain steadfast. It's an exhortation to persist in endurance. See, this is the difference uh, uh, between the la this point and the last point. This is an exhortation not just to endure the heat of the furnace, but to endure the time that God has you in the furnace. I'm going to say that again. It's an exhortation not just to endure the heat of the furnace, but to endure the time that God has you in the furnace. It's an exhortation not just to bring it up to 400 degrees Fahrenheit, but to also endure the 45-minute cook time. We have to leave endurance in the oven to be perfected. Here's a real talk moment. Are you persisting in endurance? Are you being aged in the furnace as long as God has you there? Or are you just taking a dip in the furnace on your own terms and in your own timing? Maybe you're receiving ridicule for your faith at work and you've endured for a while, but it just seems easier if you hid your faith. 
and just took endurance out of the oven. Maybe you're suffering the consequences of your sin and you've endured for a while, but it just seems easier to go back to your former life in shame and just take endurance out of the oven. Maybe you're suffering the pain of illness, death, or financial reversals, and you've endured for a while, but it just seems easier if you succumb to hopelessness and grief and just take endurance out of the oven. Or maybe like Job, you've suffered incredible, inexplicable loss, and it just seems easier to shake your fist at God in anger and take endurance out of the oven. Persist in endurance. Let your endurance be fully baked. Don't take it out of the oven before God's timing. God has just started his perfecting in you. Now you might say, God's perfecting me right now? How? I don't see it. I'm persisting in endurance, but I don't see what it's producing. Well, let's see what our text says about that. Verse 4, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. God is transforming you into maturity, produces maturity. The word perfect in verse 4 can also be translated as mature. And I love the Bible. In the New Testament, whenever you, you get pictures of maturity and immaturity, it's always this. The picture of immaturity is some kid who gets pushed around. And the image of maturity is some grown man who stands firm. It, uh, the, the great effect of persisting in endurance is maturity, character, and integrity. Suffering can be productive when we persist in endurance. It produces maturity. And here we are at the end of the passage. See, in this passage, we've seen a few grand truths of what we have to do and be in this passage. First, we've seen that regardless of what our type of suffering, we, we have to rejoice in suffering. And like in childbirth, this is done by directing our hearts to joy that is marked by both weeping and rejoicing all at the same time. Second, we have to know that suffering is productive in two ways. First, by valuing the furnace of the suffering that God's using to refine us, purify us, and ultimately temper and strengthen us. But secondly, by persisting in enduring the furnace of suffering, staying in there for the full time God has you, lest we forfeit maturity, completeness, and wholeness. But that is such a tall order. If you're anything like me, you read that text and you feel like, man, there's no way I could do that. That that is a burden that is so heavy. In fact, if you look at the, just look at verse four. It ends with this language, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Who felt perfect today? Who felt complete today? Who felt this week like, man, I'm lacking nothing. This is perfection. See, we read a verse like this, and, and we realize how imperfect we are. Yeah, we see a vision of wholeness and fulfillment that our hearts crave for, but we ultimately know we often fall so short of that, of that ideal. Our hearts feel so imperfect, so incomplete, so unwhole, and so, un so lacking. Please tell me that I'm not the only one who often feels that. But perhaps our hearts should feel that way. Commentator Doug Moo suggested that the word perfect in verse 4 means more than just mature because nothing less than the complete moral integrity will ultimately satisfy a holy God. And the perfection required in this passage only serves to highlight our imperfection. 
We see in this text an exhortation to let endurance perfect its work in you, that you might be perfect, and we feel so imperfect. We rightfully groan at how far we fall short of perfection. But praise be to God that we have one who came before us who's called the perfecter of our faith. His name is Jesus Christ. And Hebrews 12, verse 1 to 2 on the screen says that Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of God. What does this mean for our lives? What does this mean for our day-to-day lives? It means that even the work called to persist in, in, in enduring, Jesus was the one who ultimately persisted in enduring the cross, the ultimate furnace, that he might complete his work of salvation in us and make us whole by taking our place so that we may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. And so now we too can persist in endurance, yearning for the day where he'll finish the job and perfect us completely. It means that Jesus was the one who ultimately valued tested faith by despising the shame of the cross, enduring it instead. Well, it's typically just a tool for suffering and nothing else. He despised that shame and said, no, there can be good that comes from it. And so now we too can cherish cherish that old rugged cross and we can despise the shame of the crosses we bear today. It means that he was the one who ultimately counted it all joy in suffering when he went to the cross, not by counting equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Why? Why? For the joy that was set before him, the joy of his exaltation at the right hand of God, that, that every knee would come and, every, and would bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And so now we can walk in fullness of joy because we know that's going to be my knee one day. It's going to be my tongue one day confessing that Jesus Christ is Lord. So we can walk in fullness of joy knowing that we'll stand before him one day and this light momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory that's, that's beyond all comparison. Hey, see, we could never measure up to the perfection and the wholeness that this passage requires. Never. But thank God that Jesus did measure up. Perhaps you're sitting there and here and you're not a follower of Jesus Christ, but you still sense your own inadequacy and lack of perfection. You've been trying your hardest, especially in seasons of suffering, just to push through, do the right things and hope for the best, but you keep coming up short. You, you still groan at your inadequacy and your lack of perfection and know that you can never be perfect on your own. My call to you is this. Put your faith in the perfect record of Jesus Christ. Stop trusting in your efforts to better yourself and trust in the work of Jesus Christ to perf- uh, um, th- th- who is the perfect man who doesn't call us to perfect ourselves but dies in our place so that he can give us his perfect record and make us whole. On the other hand, perhaps you're sitting here and you are a follower of Jesus Christ. And in the midst of deep suffering, you say in your heart of hearts, I'm struggling to find joy. I'm not valuing the furnace of tested faith and I'm not persisting in endurance. I feel alone, nobody knows, and I'm not suffering very well. Here's a big truth for your heart. You're not the founder and perfecter of your faith. Jesus is, gaze at the cross 
And the more you soak it in, you'll, the more you'll see how redemptive suffering can be and how much joy can result. Because if God could take such a horrendous tool of suffering and turn it for our joy, turn it for our greatest good, he could do the same with yours. Pray for the Holy Spirit to open your eyes to gaze on Jesus Christ. He's the only one who can do it. And remind your heart that Jesus will come again to take you home. Um, Charles Spurgeon famously once said, I've learned to kiss the wave that throws me against the rock of ages. I've learned to kiss the wave that throws me against the rock of ages. Can we yearn that even as we're tossed to and fro by the waves of suffering in our life, we would count ourselves blessed as long as it throws us against the rock of ages? You might ask, like, how could we possibly do this? What is a life that is marked by that? What does that look like? Well, I'm going to end um, with the story of a man who did learn to kiss the wave that threw him against the rock of ages. I'd love to invite the worship team to come back up. His name is Horatio Spafford. And Horatio Spafford wrote the famous hymn, um, It's Well With My Soul. And what's perhaps more amazing than the hymn is the story behind the hymn. See, Horatio Spafford was a successful man and everything was going great. He had a, he had a wife and five beautiful children and he was a successful man. But in 1871, everything changed. First, his only son unexpectedly died. And then after that, he invested heavily in Chicago real estate, and it was all wiped out in the Chicago fire. Two years later, still reeling from those losses, he planned a trip, a European trip, for his family, his, his wife and his four daughters, so that they can get some rest. But he ran into some business developments that caused him to, to, to not be able to join them um, on the trip. So he stayed back and sent them on their way on the ship, and he intended to join them later. On November 22nd, that ship was struck and sank in 12 minutes. When the survivors finally landed on shore, Mrs. Spafford cabled her husband what is now a famous telegram. It said this, two words, saved alone, saved alone. In a matter of two years, this man lost all five of his children. In a matter of 12 minutes, he lost all four of his daughters. Shortly afterwards, Spafford left by ship to join his bereaved wife, and it's speculated that on the sea near the area where his daughters drowned, Spafford penned these words, when peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot that has taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. How could it be well with his soul? He just lost everything. I think the key is in the next stanza where he gazes at Jesus Christ, the rock of ages, and he pens these words. Though Satan should buffet, though trial should come, let this blessed assurance control. Let me be controlled by this blessed assurance because I got nothing, to, nothing else to hold on to. And what is that assurance? It's this, that Christ has regarded my helpless estate and has shed his own blood for my soul. Let's pray. Our Father, we may be in a time of great suffering now. Perhaps some of us are suffering and the pain is really real. And it's hard to cry out that it is well with our soul because it, if we're honest with ourselves, our souls are in turmoil. 
But Lord, we yearn to kiss the wave and learn to kiss the wave that throws us against the rock of ages. Lord, my heart yearns for that. My heart yearns to not be so paralyzed by fear of, of suffering. My heart yearns to not just see suffering as an evil hiccup in my life, but an opportunity for that wave to throw me against Jesus Christ. And Lord, my, I know my life needs more throwing against Jesus Christ. My life is too Christ deficient. And I, anything, that, anything that gets me against the rock of ages, I'll take, God, even if it's a wave that causes me to toss and turn. So Lord, I pray that as we sing this song, that you will, you will enlarge our view of Jesus Christ and that the cross will take us through and all of a sudden endure the crosses we bear. In your most precious name we pray. Amen.